You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 91 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is internationally acclaimed historian Ian McCallum, who is a professor of environmental humanities. He has written many different kinds of books, but the reason I discovered his work was through his biography of the mysterious Count Cagliostro, called The Last Alchemist. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Alex. Wonderful to be here. Can you uh, tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name's Ian McCalman. I'm a professor uh, of environmental humanities in Australia. Run a, we run a centre called the Sydney Environment Institute, which is... Although I'm a historian by by trade, um, it is cross-disciplinary. So we have we have a whole series of people, ranging from biologists to engineers and so on, who work with us on environmental problems. So that's that's my my day job. My my after-hours job is to try and write books. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you uh, tend to um, write books about history. And a bit of unusual histories. What what kind of areas in history interest you? Yeah, that's a good question, Alex. Um, I actually roam all over the place. If you follow the sort of track of my books, it I I get interested in a, a, a problem, curiosity driven, and so then I write a book about it, rather than uh, more typically where you just work in a in a specialized field. Broadly speaking, I. I work in the modern era from the 18th century to the present and and more or less uh, in European, British, Australian, West Indian, American kind of historical areas. I'm very interested in indigenous life uh, and the indigenous interaction between um, settler societies and indigenous peoples. But uh, it'd be very hard for me to describe exactly what uh, drives me to write a book. I just find a, a problem that interests me. You know, we call the present time the modern era. And there was the Renaissance and the, well, it used to be called the Dark Ages. I think they've changed the name of it. But uh, in like 500 years, do you think when they look back, this will still be the modern age? I think I I am actually a believer in this idea that we've entered a new era round about uh probably round about the time of the industrial revolution in the late 18th century and that we'll look back and say that this is the beginning of the anthropocene uh era the era where humans uh have become in some ways able to influence the biophysical forces of nature and it's changed our whole planet it's changed it it is changing the way almost everybody on the planet is going to be living. And so looking back a thousand or two thousand years into this era, I think that's what will be it'll be the, a new era that we have entered. The modern era will end uh, rather earlier, 
I think, um, because I think this there's a kind of uh, one of the biggest fissures between human beings um, and nature has suddenly kind of collapsed. And here we are now. Once we were tossed around by the forces of nature, now we toss the forces of nature around. It's a major movement of mankind and a kind of scary one. When it comes to history, it's a bit different than other types of sciences, I guess, because in all uh, different sciences you have, like, uh, real chemistry and then you have, like, what could be called pseudochemistry, like alchemy. But in history, you you have like real or confirmed historical accounts or books, and then you have like uh, people who write alternative histories. But what makes a real history is is it just because the guy who writes it has a PhD in history, or is it because there's a different way of of investigating history than what what hobby history historians are doing? That's a, that's a really good question. I think there's two different schools of thought. I, there are some people who believe that, that history is a social science and, they, um, and that's particularly the case in universities. And there's some people who believe it's a literary art and I'm one of those. Um, I mean, I, I think everything you do must be grounded in the fragments of the past. You know, we have to use evidence we can't make it up as soon as you make things up even small things then you become a fiction writer and there is a blurred as you as you know it's kind of blurred line between fiction writers and historians but what has happened with me is I think I might have started out uh, at university in the more social sciencey mode at least in my first couple of books but I was persuaded by a, a literary agent to try to write not just for specialist writers but to try and reach a, a popular audience. And to do that, I think you have to be willing to be a storyteller. The narrative becomes a very the, the kind of central thing that you use, even if you use it in unusual ways, um, like film people do. Uh, but so I think this has changed my the way I write history and the kind of histories that I write over the last, say, 10 to 15 years, maybe 20 years. Um, those The books that I've produced have been in that mode. Usually when you uh, try to write the history, you look at people's letters and diaries, and it's the social media of those days, I imagine. So, um, and And as you know, in social media, people lie a lot you know they portray themselves as living a different life so so isn't he, isn't it like still very difficult to to actually know what happened because those letters and diaries are so biased absolutely uh we uh, we don't know what happened really i don't think we can say categorically what happened except at a very low level uh, where people agree you know x walked over the and was hit by a car some of that kind of low level facts you can you can agree on but as soon as anything requires interpretation of any kind then it is a a, a matter of subjectivity even though you know you really try to marshal all the evidence and you try to negotiate what you think is uh, is people's making it up and lying and so on it's it's a very complicated passage that you have to weave between these these things 
to, to give you an example, actually in my, my first book I wrote almost entirely from the records of 18th, the spy records in the 18th century, spying on radicals uh, in their own society. And every spy made it up to some degree. So what I had to do was find spies and look at the different accounts where they even spied on each other. You're, you're negotiating all these different uh, uh, accounts and trying to find out what is the most likely thing in your in your view that that must have happened but always it will be subjective and i think that a lot of disciplines are much more subjective than they pretend uh, i mean there is a tendency to use specialized jargon to develop very specialized terminologies which act as a kind of filter between you and ordinary people as a way of, uh, you know, justifying our existence as academics um, and disguising the fact that there is, uh, that there is a, a very subjective element to what we do. I tend now to put that front and centre. So most of my books now begin with an explanation of why I've written them and, you know, what, what I was trying to do in writing them so that the reader is not left in any doubt as to what I think and what I'm trying to do. And uh, about lying, I guess, is a good theme and very, must have been very difficult when you wrote uh, this book, uh, The Last Alchemist, about uh, Cagliostro, who was, well, we don't know, but maybe a charlatan or maybe he was a, a real genius, who knows. But uh, can you talk a bit about this book? Because uh, that's how I found out about you oh, initially. Right. Oh yeah, the the last alchemist presented me with a t terrific problem because Cagliostro undoubtedly was a con man. So he, in some ways, he was a kind of professional liar, and yet um, he had tremendous talent. I mean, I've got a, I've got some uh, pictures that he painted on my walls at home, um, and uh, in fact, uh, Casanova once said that he did Rembrandt better than Rembrandt. So he had all sorts of extraordinary talents. Um, very strange man. But the problem was that I found there were almost no sources that gave his point of view. I mean, he almost all the records that I used were of people who had tried to imprison him or had imprisoned him or chased him out of the country, um, who, who thought he was a charlatan and so on. So what I really had to do was to negotiate the different ways in which he was viewed by hostile people and then allow the reader to try and decide, well, what's the real Cagliostro? You have to decide in, in the end. I try to deliver um, the stories as various hostile people saw him, so, say, Casanova or, or Catherine the Great or Marie Antoinette. Um, and it's an amazing man. Uh, in some ways, conned all of those three people. Can you t uh, t explain a bit about who he was to the listeners who might not be uh, aware and also how you discovered him from in the first place? Yes, um, his name was uh, Giuseppe Balsamo and he was uh, a, an Italian living in, in Sicily, uh, in Palermo, in a slum. Um, and uh, he was barely educated, if at all. Um, and in fact, he never really even had a, a grasp of 
any particular language except uh, sort of idiomatic Italian. He, he spoke in a kind of strange pigeon of, that he'd acquired, bits and pieces of French, bits and pieces of, of different kinds of Italian, bits and pieces of Russian. And this is a very odd man. But he presented himself early on as somebody with magical powers. And, uh, um, I mean, the 18th century was at the point where magic was on the wane. The idea that magic was possible was very much on the wane. And we were moving into a kind of forerunner of science. And alchemy, alchemy f- sort of filled that gap. It was, it was half magical, and yet many people thought it was an actual science, that it, would, it could deliver... It could eventually turn, you know, lead into gold, uh, or you could discover the secret of eternal life um, through these chemical experiments. And in some ways, it foreshadowed science. So he became uh, he became an alchemist. He represented himself as an alchemist, and he went round the world, um, acquiring great fame often and uh, great riches but also having to having to run often from ev- from uh, police or being put in prison and so on so he he lived the life of a of an adventurer um, but he had the reputation of having great extraordinary magical powers and the curious thing is that there is there is some evidence that he succeeded. Maybe he succeeded in what looks like a magical event. For example, you can prove uh, with hard evidence that he won the lottery twice in in England um, with numbers that he, he did. And he was only there for a short time. He said, I'll win the lottery, and he did. Now, that seems ridiculous uh, but that is a fact you you know you can you can track that down he didn't make that up so he was the most extraordinary man i mean in some ways i i think he was a a, a crook a sort of tony soprano of 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 his day in other ways you can think of him as as a self-made man who conquered uh, a very very aristocratic society um, with, a, with almost no education, almost no money, he managed to become hailed by princes. And um, One of the main uh, ways that he did this was through Freemasonry. Um, and Freemasonry was a, 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 a massive a sort of social institution in Europe in particular that uh, no longer exists or no longer exists in in that form but it because it was a secret a sort of secret society and often attracted people with this belief in magic and and with uh, a hope that they could make a lot of money he found lots of credulous people that he could uh, he could latch on to um, so he went round the world i mean he seems to i mean he went to all Right through Europe, he went to Africa twice, or at least the fringes of Africa. He went to Madag- uh, to Malta, um, representing himself as a as a a great spiritual and magical uh, seer, I suppose we, we we might say. Fantastic guy, um, really, and the the 
interesting thing about him is that there is a massive amount of, of information on him because he was, for example, he was put in the Bastille. He was interrogated um, uh, by, by the mon- monarchs, uh, kind of uh, priests and others. He was also uh, imprisoned by the Inquisition, so he was interrogated. They tracked his whole life. So there's massive amount of evidence in different countries about him, but all of it negative. So how do you write? Uh, and yet, you know, he seems to have ma- managed to impress huge numbers of people. So presented a very big, uh, uh, I suppose, a, a conundrum for me to try and get at this man, this, uh, to get at his personality. But if he was like known charlatan and people were after him and at the same time people must have adored him, uh, how, is, maybe that's why he traveled around so much, like he, he could travel quicker than the, the, the rumor about him. Or That's a very good point. He could not have existed in the modern age of communications because he got to places before they'd heard about what he'd done. I mean, for example, he got to Britain after he'd got out of the Bastille and they didn't know, nobody in Britain knew that he'd been in there and likewise in Russia and so on so you're right he kept he kept on the move all the time until he was finally caught uh, uh, by the inquisition and put into a into a terrible a, a, a castle a prison castle for the last five years of his life in a in a kind of underground um, den uh, uh, under most awful conditions he ended his life very tragically um, but uh, but at the same time you can see for example I've, I visited in Switzerland there's a building that he organized um, and had built by a, a Swiss millionaire in which he supposedly turned people and gave them eternal life that building is still there to see you know the 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 at the same time you can go into a sl- the slum in Palermo and see this tiny little uh, tiny little house that he once lived in with his mother uh, and other children in in a very slum slummy area and i found that how i came to write about him he was a, he was a, sm- a minor character in an earlier book i'd, I'd come across him and I just looked him up, as you do, and uh, started to see this. This was a very strange man. And the more I looked at him, the more I discovered that uh, he was al- almost incredible, his life. And I would never have normally have written about him, I think, because it was not in my field, as academics used to say. But this was just at the time when uh, a literary agent... Um, came up to me after I'd been giving an academic talk and said, look, you can tell amazing stories. Why don't you write for a book for the public and I'll try and get, you know, get it, get it published um, and, and distributed. And I, I refused to do this for a while, but she just kept on at me. And eventually I said, well, I, I could write something about this crazy guy, maybe Cagliostro. Um She said, yeah, that would be a great idea. Well, at that time, I wasn't sure if I should. So I actually made a visit. I was was doing some work in Europe. So I made a visit to Palermo. Um, 
and had an extraordinary experience there, very Cagliostro-like experience. I was in a hotel and I was asking, asking them, it, it, the people at the desk, about Cagliostro and they, they said, oh, we, you know, people know that he lived somewhere in this city, but we don't know anything about him. And uh, there was a, a woman standing at the desk um, at the same time, and she said, oh, I used to live in his flat. And while I was living in his flat, somebody discovered where it was, and they bashed it open, bashed open the flat. Um, and she took me there. And at that point, no one knew where it was. Um, it was like a magical event. And she then uh, introduced me to another uh, another woman who had was devoting her life to to uh, Cagliostro to to kind of perpetuating his legacy and um, in a little tiny little house so this felt like something you know something I had to do so I did go back and and write the book um, and I never expected it to sell you know it did in the end go into I think around 14 languages and <clears throat> I also sold film rights and all sorts of rights I mean most of the the things didn't come off the film uh, Antony Minghella was going to do a film about Cagliostro and he inconveniently died <laughs> so that didn't happen and then Miramax who'd, who'd uh, taken up the film rights said Johnny Depp was doing the libertine it was too much like Cagliostro so various things didn't come off but nevertheless it was a kind of magical moment for me because I really enjoyed the mystery of Cagliostro as I wrote it and I also enjoyed trying to work in fortunately I can read French and most of his work was translated into French though I did have to get some Russian stuff translated for me and, and some Italian uh, so it was, a, it was a new departure for me writing a book for the general public and a book that might become a film uh, and I've done that ever since Did he leave any legacy in terms of the uh, Freemason movement? I don't think so. I mean, he became in, he was at the the sort of more mystical end of Freemasonry, so the Templars and so on. Um, people say he did found a particular Masonic ritual. Uh, when you look into the evidence, it doesn't seem likely. You know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at Freemason Freemasonic Free rituals and till I was going mad um, so in in many ways he ha he hasn't left a legacy he almost wrote almost nothing he was semi-illiterate in all the mountains of papers that I read I only saw a tiny piece of writing by him about three lines um, because it was all um, done through his verbal his verbal powers so here was a man who, as able to, able twice to con Casanova, not just once but twice, um, astonishing kind of character, and I think he represented, to me, K 
Casanova was an old-fashioned, uh, in some ways, an old-fashioned con man, uh, really very aristocratic in his behaviour. Cagliostro was a new, was a, the, the kind of con man that emerged in the time of the French Revolution, when people c- came into the, you know, from below and burst into the world who'd not normally been able to make an impact. So he is, in a way, a very modern figure, but not uh, well known in Europe, and especially in Italy and France, but not outside of that. I found no one in America had heard of him at all. During the same time as as he lived, and uh, there was this, this other guy called Saint Germain. Yes. Very similar, uh, if you compare them. And it's interesting that two people, maybe that was a common thing in those days, because they, but both of them, you know, were conning or with yes. Marie Antoinette and all these characters. Yes, Saint Germain was very similar. In fact, they seem to have met up at one uh, on one occasion. At least it's uh, it's suggested that they were. I think it was a time. It was a time when, first of all. You, you could move between one place or another. I mean, the, uh, Cagliostro didn't really need a passport. He just would get some somebody to write a letter of recommendation and move into the next country. So there was, a, there was freedom of movement. Uh, at the same time, there weren't the means of, of finding out about people that there are today. You know, you, you couldn't get on the telephone and say, watch out for this guy, he's coming. Um, and and so there was this capacity to i think to to deceive people to to be an imposter and make a new identity um and he was a, he was a maestro of that as was saint-germain and um you could then go into a new country where you know you were an unfamiliar figure and represent yourself as as some as somebody with great magical powers and so on. Uh, later on, it just became too difficult because of the rise in communications, the telegraph, you know, and so on. You would immediately have been detected, and you know they would have sent a telegram to say, "This guy Cagliostro is coming to your place. Arrest him." And 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 or sent an image that you could photograph and and show. So he changed his appearance. Um, sometimes he, the, the first time he conned uh, Casanova, he had dressed up as a priest, as a pilgrim. He and his wife pretended to be pilgrims. So you know he did. He was a, a master of disguise in a sense, as well. And I think it's just this moment in time when uh, when you could do that when. when in a way, societies hadn't become as controlled uh, down at least in the bottom at the bottom end as they are now. Well, the, and the main difference, I guess, with Cagliostro and Saint Germain is that Saint Germain never finished his history with like being a charlatan or in prison. He just continued having a good reputation and just disappearing into history. That's true. I mean, Saint-Germain was a much more educated man, really, and I think he had a more coherent um, philosophy of life. Cagliostro's was pretty crazy, Um, and he seems to have attracted 
as as happens even today he attracted people who had were needy in some way they you know they felt either they were people who felt themselves to be ill when they weren't and he would cure them by his self-confidence um, or else they were people who had lost their religion and uh, didn't know were looking for something they were searchers um, and he found such people and used them whereas I think Saint-Germain was offering a kind of alternative philosophy, really. So th- in that way, w- they were slightly different. Uh, I, w- although people s- uh, say that he was a charlatan, I think he wasn't a charlatan in the way Cagliostro was. No, that's true. And uh, he was also uh, more like a spy and and uh, also like Cagliostro, artistic skills. Yes. Maybe Cagliostro was inspired by him and tried to imitate his the way he presented himself to, I don't know, I don't know who came first uh, publicly. I think, I think uh, he was probably influenced to some degree by Saint-Germain, as he was by, by Casanova, because Casanova was a con man as well, I mean, but he tended to work uh, via sexuality. Um, so he, he, you know, Casano- um, Cagliostro was looking around all the time, learning new techniques, um, new stories to tell, um, and getting involved in the most extraordinary stories like the diamond necklace affair and so on, Be- becoming a a really major political figure. I mean, he's see, he was seen during the French Revolution as a as a leader in the in the revolution. And one of the one of the uh, prints I have in my own house that he did has was done in the Bastille, and it has the it has the head of the governor on a pike, bleeding. So you know, you looks like this is a, a revolutionary. But it was just a phase. He just adapted like a chameleon to whichever, whichever place he was in. Are you working on anything uh, new now? You mentioned earlier uh, before we started recording that you're working on a book. Yes, I'm working on a, on a book um, which is really about the introduction of wildlife hunting, uh, safari life in East Africa. Partly it's a family story um, because, uh, as it turned out, my great-uncle started the first safari company in Africa and took Theodore Roosevelt, the president of of the United States, on a year-long safari and then became very famous for slaughtering animals. Um, And the reason I'm doing this book, really, is because I love animals and my father was a big game photographer um, not a hunter at all so I'm interested in why people became hunters what they what they thought they were achieving uh, by hunting Roosevelt for example saw hunting mainly as a kind of training ground of masculinity you know so that you were training for war by killing animals you mean hunting for sport yes yes and trophies uh, that's right. Uh, he also he also uh, did hunt for science, as it was called. Science in those days uh, was to the idea was you would get animals and get a taxidermy person to work on them, and you could then put them in a museum and go and look at them. We've all done that. 
uh, and the legacies of these people are, are still, especially in America, to be found, but also in, in Europe as well. So this book uh, started off because I inherited these these little bowls. They look as though they were dishes. They look like a tortoise shell, and they've got a, a little um, silver rim around the front and these silver ball feet, and they they have engraved on them LJT, which is my great uncle Leslie jo- Jeffress Tarleton from TR Theodore Roosevelt, and they're the toenails of an elephant cow that he shot um, and it's a, the, in a way it's a horrible you know it's a grotesque a trophy and it intrigued me uh, I wanted to see how it happened and so I actually begin the book by tracking down the very story of the killing of this particular cow and how they and how and why they cut her up and and turned her into toenail, these toenail dishes and so on and use that as an introduction to an exploration of the impact of hunting, both science, scientific hunting, as it was called, and sport hunting in Africa, which, of course, has um, both directly and indirectly led to the enormous destruction of African wildlife. It's hard now to do it, because as soon as some rich guy posts a picture on the Internet of him killing some animal, the whole Internet comes down on him. Yes, that's true. The whole story of Cecil the lion. Um, it's, it's, it's harder to do if you pose, um, but I, there are still plenty of people doing it, not uh, showing themselves on the internet. Um, I mean, there is a whole hierarchy of, uh, of trophies uh, that, that are seen as desirable all around the world and often the more endangered the animal the more esteemed it is as a trophy uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt himself uh, went into the Congo and killed nine white rhino northern white rhino which are now extinct even were close to extinction at that time he killed nine of them including uh, two calves and a pregnant and two pregnant cows. So, he's, he's, a number of the species were being knocked out, and it it intrigued me to ask a question. And here's a man who was a, a genuine naturalist, uh, probably has contributed more to conservation than any other president in in America. He he extended all the major um, reserves. Uh, he saved an enormous amount of forest and so on, a great conservationist, uh, a great preacher of the importance of conservation, yet could do, could could go in and nearly w- help to wipe out a species. So these are, these are the sorts of puzzles that I'm trying to engage with in this story. But wasn't there like more, more animals in, in those days or, or was it still uh, endangered? Well, the northern white rhino were already endangered, and even at this even at this stage, so we're talking about 1910, just at the beginning of the foundation of, of a colony in what what is now Kenya. Um, already, the elephants were showing. Uh, there's a huge decline in elephant size and in the kind of uh, tusk size of elephants, even at that point, um, and. Uh, um, 
you know, it's only it's uh, it's the game part, game reserve movement that has preserved these animals to some degree. But uh, I mean, all over the, the beginning of the decline in these numbers goes back to the early twentieth century and to the and to the founding of professional safaris, like the the kind of people that took uh, the dentist to go and shoot Cecil the lion and shoot often in very cruel ways that's another thing i mean shooting a lion as as this man did with a crossbow meant that it took hours to die in in considerable agony so so these are some some of these uh, these hunting methods were insanely cruel by us uh, by our modern standards and I, I want to try to get into the minds of people who could on the one hand believe in the importance of naturalism and, and love the outdoors and want to preserve um, animals to some degree in game parks and yet kill them. Uh, often the same people. Hemingway was a bit like that, wasn't he? Yes, Hemingway was the last, uh, was pretty much the last person my uncle took on safari. Uh, starting with Roosevelt, so is the trajectory from Roosevelt to to Hemingway. Um, Hemingway wasn't as bad as many others, actually, because uh, the person who actually took him on the safari, my it was in my uncle's safari company, but the the hunter was called Percival, um, and he was uh, one of the one of the. Uh, a person with very strong principles about how you should kill animals. And there was no, uh, would not allow cruelty or would not allow animals to, to be wounded and then go off and die in the bush and so on. So although Hemingway was very macho, there's no doubt about it, he regarded hunting as part of what made a, uh, made a man. He wasn't as brutal a hunter as his reputation when you actually look at it. Uh, I've been in uh, Tanzania and for every lion there's about a thousand zebras. Why don't they hunt zebras instead? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a good question, Alex. And, and that's the sort of question I'm asking. It seems pretty clear that mascu- you know, what, was, uh, what we call masculinity or machismo is a crucial part of this. That killing a zebra has no no danger or or no there's nothing heroic about it it's like going up and killing some poor pony you know in a, in a field the idea of killing an animal that is enormously dangerous like a lion uh, or a buffalo hippo a rhino an elephant gives this uh, huge charge to people um, and some of them died. I mean, my my uncle, both both two of my uncles were badly mauled, one by a, with a leopard and one by a lion. Many people um, in those days did die doing this. But then it it increasingly became bogus. Uh, you know, you could hunt with high powered rifles from a vehicle. You had a, the animal had no chance whatsoever. Uh, so the idea of uh, hunting as a as an uh, we call it an affirmation of masculinity um, and a substitute for war, 
you know, I, I, a substitute for war is, is how I think definitely Roosevelt and many other people in that age saw hunting as either a substitute or a preparation for war. Hemingway makes that explicitly clear that he believed that that was the function. When, when I was in Tanzania, I lived in a lodge in the middle of the savannah and there was no fence around it. Just, there was just one sign that said, uh, don't walk beyond this point. And I'm a bit of a rebel, but I, I still decided to ask the, the guy who owned the lodge if anybody had ever... Because it was just a sign. It's yes. so easy to ignore if anybody had ever ignored that sign. And, and he said that, yeah, one time one guy did, but he never came back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and uh, there was a, a part of the cemetery in in Nairobi where they put all the people who had been killed by lions, these safari guys um, and uh, people would visit it and I know that uh, there were at least I've seen them, some of these uh, some, some of these tombstones uh, 12, 12 tombstones with people all had been killed by lions while trying to trying to show off I suppose and people don't realize also that, like, they think about lions and maybe cheetahs, but, you know, hippos and rhinos and even uh, crocodiles are yeah. very dangerous. Oh, uh, whereas you don't think they are. But when you when you look at, like, a hippo looks kind of cute, and but uh, in reality it's quite dangerous. That's right. I used to sail in Africa, and uh, I was really very, very scared of hippos, um, especially because they're territorial and in very and part at times of uh, in their in their sort of life cycle the bull hippo is trying to protect their 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 area in the river and they'll they'll come and knock over a boat and kill you um crocodiles the same i mean i have tremendous respect for crocodiles and hippos they used to sail in and in waters where you'd see them all around you um and uh, these animals are they fulfill their destiny by capturing pieces of living meat like we are uh, and they should be allowed to do that I think well they do it to eat <clears throat> they do it to eat and to survive uh, hippo of course are uh, vegetarians and, and uh, so are elephants and very few of very few of these animals will attack you unless you are stupid, unless you um, frighten them or, you know, go into their territory without um, proper precautions. So uh, and my father, say, was a big game photographer, would go up to... But he knew the animals very well. It wasn't stupid about it. He didn't provoke them into attacking him and then, of course, shoot them because they'd attacked him. I think we have to understand, really understand and respect animals as part of nature, as we are, um, and treat them accordingly. Uh, so that's one of the things, one of the things I'm doing in my, in my book is, is having a few uh, particular animals as major figures in the book. I mean, not fictionally, but in, tr in truth... Um, there's a monkey that are, act, is a major figure in the book and there's elephants that are major figures in the book. 
because they they are sentient beings with high intelligence and some kind of, of what we might call morality uh, and great social compassion for their own their own species so we need to understand them and respect them i saw a nature documentary once and they showed that lions who hunt have their tail down and when it's not hunting it's up and they were filming the lion walking or the lioness actually who is the hunter uh, walking right in the middle of 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 the her natural prey but the tail was up so the the other animals didn't run away because they knew she wasn't hunting she wasn't hunting and she could easily have been you know lying to <laughs> get close yes yes i mean the only animals that i've ever found that actually were capable of duplicity uh, is uh, once uh, i saw a baboon that had been chained up and um it it pre- it pretended that it was at the e- end of the chain and dogs would come close to it but then it would just jump out and bite them so so that was a very clever uh, tactic i think because it was bored i mean it being put on a chain but uh, but they're hugely intelligent um uh, creatures and they're also as you were saying with your story about the lion a uh, very few animals kill for no reason. I mean they kill when they're hungry, when they're not hungry they don't go and attack. Um they don't kill for sport <laughs> like we do. So, you know, they 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 are entitled to our respect because they're part of the cycle of nature in the oceans and in the uh, in the land. Um and that's uh I think it's very important for our own humanity to develop proper relationships with non-human creatures in the planet. Do you have any like website or any place where people can find your books? Yes, I do. Um my previous book, for example, The Reef uh about the Great Barrier Reef, I have a website um and on that website I've made three films, uh, 20 about 20 minute films which are stories of major stories in the book and I have interviews with many of the people especially the indigenous people who helped me um to write the book and uh I also as much as possible try to uh, to use film um as a matter of fact at the moment I'm writing a treatment for a a, a series I hope to get up on the reef uh, uh, for television and my previous book Darwin's Armada did become a a three-part television series. We also do exhibitions, uh, do museum exhibitions around the themes of the book and um uh, uh sometimes do radio programs. So I I like the idea of trying to get one if we have a story that you believe in to try and get it out in a whole variety of methods. to reach different kinds of audiences. Cool. Thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for giving me the chance, Alex. I really really appreciate it. In the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com I have posted a few links related to Ian's work, so check that out. Now it is time for a band called 
the Gentlemen's Anti-Temperance League and a track from their album Lamp aptly called The Count Cagliostro. Surf over to thegatl.com for more information. And naturally I'll post this and other links to this band in the program notes as well so you can check it out if you enjoy the music. And we mentioned a bit about uh, this character called Saint Germain in this episode. And I, uh, in fact, dedicated an, an entire episode to this equally mysterious character of history. And that's back in episode number 72. So check that out if you're interested. Now, all I gotta say is, freedom is in the mind. <laughs> Strangers' lives. <laughs> 